Welcome everyone to a Mexican and a redneck and a redneck's grandfather, father of the world. We are your hosts and surrogate fathers, Juan, Ben, and our special guest, Dr. Tom Heath, or Papal. We've already covered a lot of his, uh, his childhood, and we've gotten up to the age of 13, mm-hmm. yes, and so we're going to pick up now with the rest of his story, and he's 83 now, so y'all just get some popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it took us uh, about an hour to get to 13, so <laughs> stretch out, get your nice little blankie. It's going to be fun. So I want to kind of, uh, one of the questions that I had for you, um, at 13, I feel like for most young men, this is kind of like the coming of age type mm-hmm. of life. Event. Yep. Or, you know, you at 13, you you get the first growth spurt, you get that rush of testosterone. You're kind of like, yeah. you feel like a man, you know, funny story. I remember when, uh, when I turned, I was probably 13, 14. Um, I remember, you know, I had my first growth spurt and I was good sized guy from, from my age and I'm the oldest in my family. I'm one of six. My dad was, uh, uh, he was 13. He was 23 years old when he had me. So at this time he was probably about 36, 37, about my age right now. And I remember hitting this age and I was like thinking to myself, I was like, man, I can take this old man. I can take him, you know, and it's just like, I can. And, uh, one day we're working, we're working in the garage. My dad's a, he's a, he's a horse tamer as one of his trades. And then he did, uh, he, he would build saddles and stuff like that and cat nine tails and all, all different kinds of uh, things for the horses. And he was working on something and uh, he asked me for something and I responded to him. I said, yeah, I'll get it. But he sensed the tone. It wasn't, th- it wasn't that disrespectful. The, the words weren't disrespectful, but the tone was dis- disrespectful. And I remember my mind thinking like, yeah, I can take this man. Well, he sensed it. He realized it, what I was doing. And he let me know. He put me down. He's like, oh, you're going to, he, 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 he gave me such a bit. I couldn't get out of bed for the next three days, you know? <laughs> and I remember just the next day he goes into my bedroom and he's like, he's like, you're going to go to school today? And I was like, no, sir. He's like, you're going to talk to me like that again? I was like, no, sir. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm 36 years old now. One, one lesson. Yeah, I'm 36 years old now. And I'm like, I, I, I still refer to him as, uh, yes, sir, no, sir. You know, yes, even though, you, you know, but, uh. So I just kind of want to touch on that, like uh, you know, going going into thirteen years old, your dad is not really present. You know, he's he's you know you know you know of him. Your mom, you know that, that that's kind of going on. Um, just what was what was your life experience now at this age? Well, I, I live with at that age. I live with my aunt Pauline and her uncle. His name was Nick, or her uncle, my uncle, her husband. His name was Nick, and uh, Nick was. Um, they both they drank, and uh, Nick was the kind of guy he was he he's a pretty good guy uh, when he is sober. wasn't always sober, rarely sober. But uh, one day he told me he said I think I'll whip you. And I, I like I said I was about fourteen. I said, "Well, if you think I need a whipping, I'll get a belt." He said, "No, I think I'll whip you with my fist, but I'm afraid you'll hurt me." <laughs> and I thought, "I'm glad you're afraid, you know, <laughs> because I was taught not to be disrespectful to elders." Mm-hmm. And so I, we didn't, we did not have that conflict, but always felt like he wanted to, <laughs> and always felt like. It's kind of like I was out in the shed row one time, and a jockey came along and said, let's trade licks with a crop. 
Now, I did not know what he was going to do. I thought it's just an honest trade licks. But I found out later his intent. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the trainer I was working for spoke up and says, uh, I don't think I'd mess with him. I've seen him hit a horse. You don't want to mess with him. So the jockey was convinced that he didn't want to trade licks with me. Now, the thing of trading licks, I found out later, was where you hit a guy on the back of the leg first, and then he responds, and then he hauls off and hits you in the face. With the, He turns around with the lead end of the crop and uh, just to hurt you, you know, just, just the way they were. Mm-hmm. And horse people were kind people. Uh, I can't remember to whom, but they, they're kind people. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that—that's my experience. Other people haven't haven't had that experience, but um, it's like I was working with the horses one time, and a fellow said to me, he said, "Tom, you work for me and Jimmy and another guy. His name was Don." And uh, I said, "Yeah." And he said, "You know what we do?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, you know enough about us to get yourself killed. And I said, yeah, but I ain't talking to nobody. And he said, well, that's the very reason you're working for us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a strange industry, but I, I got away with it. Um, many a time, I'm serious about this. I, during the racing season, didn't go to church because work on Sunday. And... But, but I made money, and, and I'm talking about a lot of money, for a 14, 15-year-old kid. Uh, uh, one day in school, teachers trying to teach us about economics, and so the object was to know how much money you had. And she asked the kids, each one of them, and it came to me and said, Tom, how much money you got on you? I said, I don't know for sure. Well, you ought to know. If you'd guess in how much, I said probably 50 or $60. Now, school teacher at that time probably wasn't making more than $300 a month. And, uh, I mean, it's, and, I, and then I spoke up, but I work for it. I work on the racetrack. A boy spoke up and said, you can't get on the racetrack. You ain't old enough. I said, but I work on the racetrack. Hmm. And now the secret was, <clears throat> you walk up to the gate, you lead two horses. The guy says, let me see your license. So you say, okay, hold these horses. Well, if he holds the horses, the track's responsible for the horses. Mm. So he ain't going to touch the horses. <laughs> so he just says, go on in. And after that, they know me, so there's no question. So I was going on into the track. Um you know, just a kid. I didn't know anything. But it's the kind of thing where I worked with those people. And um, they were, they were, they're good to me because I kept my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. I did not tell. It's like somebody asked me from California one time that had California license, played on Big Cadillac. They said, do you know where this trainer is? I said, I know him, but I don't know where he keeps his horses. You're not supposed to tell people like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just because if they're looking for him, he's probably done something to them. Yeah. 
uh, absconded with some funds or something. They, he's done something wrong, and you're not going to rat on him. That's just the code of the horse industry. And so finally the lady says, you don't know much, do you? I said, but I ain't asking no questions. You know, that's just, <laughs> you know, that's just what you do. Um, it, it's a strange industry. It was then. Now, this is back in the 50s. Uh-huh. And um, so I got along pretty well with them. We did well. And I worked there until I was uh, 16, and then I moved back to Tulsa. We, we rented from a fellow that um, owned the racetrack, and he owned the house, the house that we lived in, the house that the manager lived in, and a row of tourist courts and some barns at the back. He owned all this land and the buildings and everything. And <clears throat> he he lived in Detroit. And they told me he was coming one day. And he says, now, Tommy, he's a very blunt fellow. Of course, he is from Detroit. The man's coming tomorrow. I said, I heard that. He said, yeah. You know who the man is? I said, I've heard. He said, now, he runs the mob in Detroit. You don't go up to his car. You don't speak to him unless he speaks to you. You be sure you answer yes, sir, no, sir. <laughs> no problem, you know. That's what I do all the time. He said, but I'm just telling you, that's <laughs> what you do. I said, okay, I'll do it, <laughs> you know. And, and he came to the house, and he talked to me a little bit while I was watering the yard, and and um, I didn't have any problem with him, you know. He didn't, it's one of those things where I didn't ruffle his feathers, and so he didn't bother me. And he he was head of the mob. He did, he finally went to prison. But um, he went to prison over having some stolen art of all things. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, uh, in his apartment in Phoenix, he had a, a piece of stolen art, a picture that had been stolen out of some place. And um, that's what they got him on. Didn't get him in Detroit. Didn't get him for anything else, laundering money through the racetrack or anything like that. They got him on a piece of stolen art. Mm. And But the truth is, uh, I kept my mouth shut, proverbially kept my nose clean, did not talk about anybody, and didn't talk to anybody about anybody. It was the thing where one time my uncle, Nick, he asked me what I thought about a particular race, uh, like the fifth or sixth race of the day. And I said, well, uh, <clears throat> I know Jimmy's been working his horse pretty hard. You might, you might think about putting money on him. And... All that nag, be lucky, break out of the gate. I said, well, I'll tell you, he, he's been working his pretty hard, and he wants to get that owner, uh, the picture taken. And uh, Now, I could not tell my uncle what was going on. I could not tell that some of them were riding a needle. Mm-hmm. And they, you, you just couldn't, because he'd get drunk and, wag his tongue Mm -hmm. well then i'd be killed yeah Yeah, i mean i'm serious yeah i mean it's a thing where 
grooms would get mad at, at a trainer and say, I'm going to tell Stuart what you're doing. Well, the trainer would say, look, let's not be upset. Let's be friends. I like you. You like me. We have a good relationship. Let's go out to dinner tonight. Go out to dinner, get him drunk, push him out in front of a car. I am serious. Mm -hmm. That happened. Not once, but several times while I was out there. Didn't, didn't get the hint. <clears throat> well, <laughs> there's some people don't learn well. <laughs> some of us learn by observation. Others learn by uh, going through it all. Yeah. But, uh, but that's just what they did. You don't, you know, this is my livelihood. You're not going to rat on me. Uh, that's just the way they lived. And I understand it's a different eras back in the 50s. Uh, but by the same token, that's the way life was. So I moved from there. My uncle got tired of me staying there. And, um, so, uh, I moved from there, <laughs> turned to my aunt. I said, do you have some of my money? Cause she asked me to let her keep the money cause I'd lose it. And, uh, I said, do you have some of my money? Well, we spent it all. Having that like that is one of those things. Probably, she probably had six, seven hundred dollars that I'd given her, but they'd spend it all. They spent it on food. Of course, I ate the food, so that I wasn't too offended about that. Except I'm thinking, you know, if they didn't buy so much whiskey, <laughs> but that's just me. <clears throat> so anyway. It was. It came down to a thing. I had trainers that offered. They said, "I'll I'll fix this tack room where you can stay in it. You can live with here and go to school, and then in the summer you can go with me to Rio Dosa." Now, they wanted me to go to Rio Dosa, and offered to give me three hundred dollars a month, plus room and board, plus all the money I could make on the side, like exercising horses or something like that. And that's a lot of money then. And um, so I thought about that. And I thought, and the Lord is what put this in my heart. If I do this, I'll be stuck in this the rest of my life. And I'll never be back in church. Mm -hmm. So I'd call my mom to see if she'd let me come stay there. It's kind of a yeah, yeah. Finally, they said yeah. And uh, so they sent a bus ticket. And, I went up there, <clears throat> went back to Tulsa, lived with my mom and stepdad for about six months, and then I moved to uh, to Texas and uh, finished high school in Denton, Texas. There's that I met my wife there, and uh, in high school we were schoolmates, and and uh, what grade did you meet her in? Uh, junior year. I um, I moved there as a junior year, finished sophomore year in Tulsa, and moved there. And uh, I, ironically, <clears throat> in Texas at that time, everybody had to have two years of algebra. Mm -hmm. You could not finish high school without two years of algebra, which I thought was good. I was looking forward to it, and I enjoyed it. I wasn't a good student up until the time I was in the eighth grade. In the eighth grade, I had a school teacher, public school teacher, 
who was a realistic fella. He worked on the side. He worked on cars. He was a neat man. He called me in one day and said, Tom, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I'm just a knucklehead. Because everybody called me a knucklehead. You're dumb. You don't know anything. Mm-hmm. He said, Tom, you're just as smart as the rest of these kids. Just realize you're smart enough to do the work. And I did. I went from being a D-plus student <laughs> uh, <clears throat> to being a B student overnight. Just realize I could do it. Mm. Having somebody tell me, you can do this. So I did. And um, then I moved to Denton. I looked forward to taking algebra. Why? Nobody looks forward to it. I just wanted the challenge, you know. And uh, I was a straight-A student, first year algebra, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I had a superior teacher, by the way. She she could she could teach algebra, and she could explain why it needed to be this way. So she was superior. And so I, I played a little football. I wasn't a good football player. I, I was on first team, but it wasn't like I was a superior player. But I enjoyed football. That was my recreation. And then I worked. And uh, so I met my wife, uh, or met Margie, and um, we went together for a couple of years, and I asked her to marry me. And uh, and, and was this, um, when you asked her to marry you, was it, were y'all still in school, or was it right after school? or In school. So you were your senior year of high school. Yeah. How many months were you away from graduating? A couple of months. Okay, so the spring semester, senior yeah. year of high school. Right. You're like, let's get married. How long did y'all stay engaged before you got married? Uh, about a year. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, okay. So it was it was the yeah. following spring. It, it wasn't a thing. It, we, we just started dating and got married. It was a deal okay. where um, I got to know her and she got to know me. And I thought I knew her and she thought she knew me, which we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anyone until you say I do. That happens I mean, sometimes. <laughs> well, no, that's true. Yeah. Everybody changes when they say I do. Mm-hmm. I don't care who it is. They change. Because life changes. Mm-hmm. Life changes as soon as you say I do. It's different until you say I do. Then it's reality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's fantasy until you say I do. So let's let's go back before we go to get into the I do. Um mm. As a young man, you're in Texas. You're Texas, right, th- yep. at this point? And then you're in high school. W- c- looking at your background, what made you want to get married? I mean, you saw you came from a broken home, so what? D- d- you still had the desire to get married even despite yep. your circumstances? The difference was I wanted a home. Mm. I badly wanted a home. My parents were not interested in me having a home. No one I lived with really cared about me having a home, but I wanted a home. When I said I do, I was saying it for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't saying it just to have somebody to go to bed with. I was saying it 
because I loved this woman and I wanted I wanted to have a home. I really did. So you proposed to her a couple of months before you graduated. So were you 17 at this time? 17? No, I was 18. 18? Oh, yeah. But how, um, <clears throat> when did you? And she was 18. But when did you, when did you meet her? And like, how did you know? Like, oh, this is the, this is what I want to be with. Um, I don't know how I knew, to be honest, except I knew that I loved her. I really knew that. And by the way, I did love her. And we we only stayed married for 45 years. And That's then, it? Yep. Oh. And then she moved <laughs> off and left me. And um, Well, clarify that. She left you. Like, I mean, she's... <clears throat> she died. Yeah. Okay. She, <laughs> she decided heaven be a better place than... Yeah. And no... In all fairness, I mean, she hasn't to left. be honest with you, she did not want to die. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that she was afraid to die. She didn't want to die. She wanted to stay. She wanted to stay with her, to be with her kids. She wanted to stay to be with her grandkids. She even loved Benjamin. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. Phenomenal yeah. woman. <laughs> she, she dearly loved her grandkids. One, <laughs> after Benjamin was born... She says, Tom, I have a thing for you. Okay, what is this? I will buy Christmas for the grandchildren, and you buy for our kids and their spouses. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. And then later on, <coughs> excuse me. Later on, we had six grandchildren. So she said, you know, this is strange. I'm buying for six and you're buying for four. I said, sweetheart, who made the deal? <laughs> <laughs> but no, she loved buying for kids. She just loved buying for kids. So, even, Well, even her dress when she was in her casket at the funeral. Yes. It was, it was a pretty dress. But she had, um, I can't remember the shapes, but it was patches on the dress, and it had each of her grandkids' names. Oh, wow. Yes. Each that's, patch. And that was her request to be buried in that dress. Oh, it wow. It was a long denim dress. Yeah. And it had her grandchildren's name on it. And she wanted to be buried in that dress. Um, so even going back to teenage years, you meet her. Um I was going to ask a really good question, but I forgot because you guys distracted me with that. Anyways. So see, see, <laughs> my grandmother was a great lady. She put up with me all them years. <laughs> well, you know, the truth of the matter is probably my wife was willing to get married to get away from home. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just being blunt about that. Uh -huh. I loved her dearly, but... She desired to get away from home. She desired to get away from, she had uh, three siblings at home. And so she wanted to be away from there. And she loved me, but, but it was the thing where getting married was the thing to get away from home. Yeah. Now, with me, getting married was a, to have a home. But for her, it was getting away from home. And... Uh, it's like a guy asked me about joining the Marine Corps when I was in high school. I said, great, Bob. 
I've thought about that. But tell me, why are you joining the Marines? He said, to get away from home. I said, Bob, I never had a home to get away from. There's no point. That's not a reason for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, to me, it didn't make sense uh, to get away from home because I never had somebody to look after me and care for me and be sure I had clothes and food and all that kind of stuff. So it didn't present a, a real opportunity to me. But getting married was a thing where I could build a home. I could have a home. I could have a place. And so. So go go a little bit more into more detail as far as that, because it looks like you had a vision. You were willing, you were wanting to build something, but she was trying to run away from that. So I would imagine in the beginning, this well, created a lot of. The, the the biggest thing was in the beginning there was a lot of of I'm not happy I want a divorce from from who from, from her? my wife uh-huh. and I said Margie just hang on it's going to get better yeah you know um, it, it, but that's just the way is because her life had been a sheltered life. Everything had pretty much gone her way. She was the oldest of, of four children, and everything had gone her way. She was a favored child, although her brother became the favored child, but she was growing up until she was, till her brother became a teenager, why uh, she was the favored child. And, and so everything went her way. Well, when you get married, everything doesn't go your way, you know. There, there. Uh, you used to say, you know, marriage is fifty-fifty, and I said, yeah, it is. Fifty percent of the time, you're given a hundred percent, and then fifty percent of the time, you're taking a hundred percent. So it's fifty-fifty. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, her vision and my vision were different. Mm -hmm. Um, and like she told me, I mentioned that when I turned 40, she said I'd been 40 all my life. Uh, but I was. I was mature at 16. Mature enough to know which way I wanted to go. I didn't know what career I wanted, but I knew which way I wanted to go. I wanted to have a home. I envisioned having a business and having a good living for my family. But the truth is, I did not know what was going to happen, but I knew what I wanted. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's just so fascinating to hear that perspective. I'm hearing that you knew where you wanted to go. Because mm -hmm. you, for all intents and purposes, you had been living in the wilderness uh, your entire life. Yeah. You had been out on your own, and yeah. you survived. Yeah. You not only survived, you in in a lot of ways you've thrived. Yeah. You know? You were this the wilderness was you it wasn't an unknown to you, a place of wonder and and, and oh like possibilities. For her, she lived in this shelter life. The wilderness or the outside world was this unknown, full of hopes and dreams and but she never experienced the pain. Yeah. 
you've experienced the pain. Oh, I knew the disappointments big time. You knew the disappointments. Yeah. So I would imagine that when she was telling you, I want a divorce, it was a lot easier for you to say, well, hey, I know what's out there. Believe me, even though we're having a hard time right now, this is better than what's out there. Yeah. Right. And and basically, that's kind of how we lived for a few years. But then it got better. And um, how what, what, what made it better? Well, what got better was she became more accepting of the fact that right now we're not going to have everything that her parents had. I used to kid about... When when I married <clears throat> my wife, I had money in the bank before I married. I had money in the bank, and uh, things were going pretty easy. I had a job and, and uh, putting money away every every week. You know, I was just maintaining a good bank account. And uh, granted, this is at eighteen while you're still in high school. Yeah. So that's, that's, oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually, I had good credit. I'm serious. Mm -hmm. My daddy told me, go to the bank and borrow $100. Build your credit. Don't spend it. Borrow it for, 100, for 90 days. Pay it back in a month. And I did. Build the credit. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, 18-year-olds, you don't have credit. Mm -hmm. But they allowed me to do that. They knew my dad, and so they allowed me on the strength of his knowing him knew that i would probably keep my word so they let me do it um i bought my first car on credit and i i paid part of it down i said if you'll sell it to me next next friday when i get paid i'll bring you the rest guy looked at me and said you know what young man i believe i trust you <laughs> sold me the car now what i'm driving but you kept your word right oh yes yeah, okay. next next friday I showed up in my work clothes. I was dirty as all get-outs, but I uh, showed up to pay him. And he said, I want to tell you something. I thought you would do this, but I'm surprised you did it so quick. <laughs> you know, as soon as I got off 4 o'clock working construction, um, I went and, and paid that car off. I didn't want to owe the man, and I wanted to keep my word. Mm -hmm. was, was that the first car you had owned? First car bought. What yeah. what was that? What car? This is it, a selfish question. Is it forty eight Chevrolet Fleetwood? All right. Yeah, it was. Um, at that time, this was in fifty seven. That's a pretty nice car. Is that the two door or the four door? Four door. Is it the one that had the visor over the front windshield? No, I didn't have one of those. Oh, okay. Those Sorry, were, listeners. Those were aftermarket. I'm just. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm nerding out right they, now they, on the they, old cars. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't come that way. Those were aftermarket. The 48 the Chevrolet Fleetwood. Yeah. All right. And uh, so I, uh, it had the vacuum assist shift. This three column, I mean three cylinder, uh, three speed, and it was column shift. And if you let off the gas and just move it with your finger, it would you could go into second gear. Same thing. If you forced it, you was fighting against the vacuum. But if you just ease it up, just shift, just slicker, smooth as silk. It's amazing. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, we, Marge and I began to build a life together. 
And uh, then our son was born when we were 20. She had just barely turned 20, but I, um, we, we bought a house and uh, bought a house with her dad's help. He was a builder. And I felt guilty about it, and then I found out he helped everybody buy a house. <laughs> he was just that kind of guy. But, but then he wanted to sell houses, too. And um, <clears throat> I guess Eric was probably about six months old. I felt a, a call to preach the gospel. Mm. And I wrestled with that for a while, and um, a long while. Wasn't something I just say, hey, this is what we're going to do. And finally, I, <clears throat> I, I surrendered to preach and uh, told Margie, we're going to move. We moved. She'd never lived in Denton in any of her mem memory life. She was born in Garland, or maybe Dallas, but right next to Garland. She was born in, in Dallas County. And then they moved to Denton when she was young, and all her life she'd lived in Denton, as far as she knew, with the exception of that first year or so. And so she had this cocoon, if you please, mm -hmm. secure in Denton. And to move off to Fort Worth was a big move. Well, for me to move was nothing. I'd moved all my life. Yeah, you, you know. Didn't. But you did. Well, but we moved. I started seminary, and uh, <clears throat> uh, this was in the summer of 59. We'd been married a few years, and we moved. And um, then we uh, went to school, and I finished school, and which was... Uh, you say, well, everybody finished. No, not everybody finished seminary. We start off with 100 in the class. Our graduating class was 40. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, that's a huge, <clears throat> it's a huge that, drop. That Well, but that's pretty normal for seminary. Mm -hmm. Even today? I think it is. Wow. Um, I know this. Um, we, had, we had some very promising men who got tired of school and just quit. And uh, I thought, you know, if you quit now, you quit forever. You know, you just always, things get going rough, you quit again. And so, but anyway, we finished school. And uh, Quitting is a hard habit to quit. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, it's a good thought. <laughs> well, you it know, really is. Well, indeed, true. <clears throat> but the remarkable thing about life is it's easy to quit. It's easy to give up. It's like first six, eight months of uh, of our marriage, uh, a few times in there, Margie wanted a divorce. You know, Her sister had gotten a divorce, so she wanted a divorce. So I said, <clears throat> no, we're not going to do that. You know, we just we just gonna tough it out. Just hang on. And uh, 
the the truth of the matter it's too easy to quit it's easy to quit today that's the reason um they have things called no fault divorce and The problem is, you just go to the judge and say, we're incompatible. He says, okay, you look incompatible to me. You're divorced. Um, it's easy to get a divorce. It's easy to quit. That's that's a sad thing that I disagree with, with our society mm-hmm. as a whole. It's I, I, I don't know how to do it, but I am very much in camp. We need... Because of the pattern we have shown as a society, where 50% of all marriages end in divorce today, we should have so much more preparation for marriage. There should be, you know, you have to sign a thing and and, and a certificate and pay your your money and all that stuff. But I think before (laughs) you should be allowed to be legally married, all couples should have to go through a mandatory you know, four, six months counseling session. And I think the counselors should be trained much, much like a lot of teachers in, in college. A lot of the things they're doing is exposing you to the realities of the field. You're going to go study because they want to help weed you out early before you get dedicated and stuck and ruin the profession they love. And and I feel the same way about marriage. I, I really believe if the government's going to be involved, then be involved in some pre-counseling. Because the destruction that comes from divorce well, is such a, a strain and horrible thing for our society. And, and some people need to know, well, wait, maybe marriage isn't what I thought it was. Maybe I need to, to rethink this before I get involved with this person. And it would save a lot of people a lot of heartache. Well, I used to counsel people while I was pastoring mm-hmm. about marriage. And I'd tell them, first thing I want you to know, and I want you to, sit down and fasten your seatbelt. But first thing you got to understand is there's a difference between love and a hot flash. <laughs> no. It's true. <laughs> well, but it's a fact. Okay, define a hot flash. Though. Well, this well, I just want to get in bed with this woman or I just want to get in bed with this guy. Um see the, the truth of the matter is, when a person says, I do, I'm saying I do to this woman. That means I don't to every other woman. Hmm. You see? It's a mindset. The problem with too many people today getting married is they don't have a mindset. Uh, Judge Cam Gray and I, um, and a few other pastors, but he and I went to Austin to get a law passed in Texas that says you get a marriage license, you have to wait 72 hours before you can have the ceremony, with a few exceptions. Um, But why? Time to think. You know, he'd had people come in, get a marriage license, walk over to his office, and get married and call him back the next day and say, hey, I was drunk when we got married. Can we do something about that? Well, I'm sorry you're married, you know. Um, That's, you know, that's the sad commentary. Um, 
people get married today for the wrong reasons. So many people get married today so they can put, pool their money together to have a, a better living, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, or they... I didn't have any money when I got married, so I don't have to worry about being in that demographic. <laughs> I had one crappy Ford Taurus, so uh, you remember. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was make uh, fun of others. Like, tell my wife, like, you got married for my money. Jug was on you. I didn't have any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but but see, the funny thing is, that you know, I mentioned I had money in the bank when I got married. I did. Uh, I had money that we could live for six months, you know, if we didn't have a job. I was 18 years old, and I'm prepared for that. Oh, wow. Uh, I had, I did not know what I was going to do. I had in my mind, though, that I was going to have a home. And I loved this woman, and and I was going to stay with her, and I did. And through the proverbial thick and thin, we stayed together. Uh, I did not always provide a great living for my family. But my son, I apologized to my son one day, and he said, Dad, back off. I said, okay, what do you mean? He said, can you tell me a time in my life when you did not provide a house for me to live in and food for me to eat and clothes on my back? And I said, no, I can't tell you that time. He said, you have nothing to apologize for. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing, you know, we've been hearing your story, and that's one of our, our reoccurring themes that we try and encourage everyone who listens to this show about is think about your childhood. Think about the things that weren't good. How And then think about the things that were good that you liked. Your children aren't that different from you. They're still children. Yeah. And and the things that were bad in your life, I always give people this this advice when they're young and having kids and starting out the things that were bad make those good you know you saw the problems you remember them you have that hurt so don't do those things but the things that were good carry those on you know honor your parents in that way well and that's that's one of our themes throughout this whole thing because that's essential today and that's something today that a lot of young people and even the um your generation has no concept about. They have no concept about my job is to provide the best I can for my kids, not the best I can to get the toys for me, but to provide a house, food, and clothing for my children. And to love them, if they have love, food, clothing, and, and, and shelter, then I'm doing the job. May not have the best clothes, may not have the best house, may not have the best food. Um, When we was in Louisiana, we ate a lot of shrimp. Now, most people didn't have a lot of shrimp. But we ate shrimp because... Sometimes people would give us shrimp that had been out, and sometimes I went out with some of the men in the church, and we we 
drug the net for shrimp. And so I got a share of it. Uh, people say, boy, you have gumbo every week? I said, sometimes, you know. I mean, just what we did. Uh, my kids love shrimp gumbo. <laughs> Dad made the best shrimp gumbo. <clears throat> oh, yeah. He, my goodness, he knew. I got authentic Louisiana yep. gumbo when he made it. Did you um, did you have any vices in your teenage years or early early marriage? Drove too fast. I don't so, do that anymore. So I get well, nervous if I drive over ninety. Well, <laughs> I just so I don't drive fast anymore. Why didn't you have vices? <clears throat> uh, two things. <clears throat> Number one, I worked for my money. So to smoke cigarettes, I had to burn up my money. That's what I saw. Yeah. Now, when I was a kid, say 10, 12 years old, packaged cigarettes cost a quarter. A good hamburger cost a quarter. Yeah. I'd rather have the good hamburger. And so I didn't like smoking. And, and then <clears throat> when I was a kid, too, I heard guys preach against it. So I thought, well, they know what they're talking about. They've been around the corner. And then as far as drinking, I couldn't stand it because I lived with alcoholics. I saw what it did to my family. Mm -hmm. saw what it did to others. And I couldn't stand. One time, <clears throat> it's my shame, but one time I got inebriated. I went to a wedding reception, and unbeknownst to me, they had this large punch bowl full of orange juice. But, and it was an airman, and his buddies had spiked it with two bottles of gin. Uh -huh. I lost $25 gambling on shooting this BB gun, <laughs> shooting at a match. Now, I knew I could hit the match, but the alcohol messed me up, so I lost 25 bucks. Next day, I found out the punch had been spiked. And I thought, okay, I lost 25 bucks because I lost control. I ain't going to do that again. Now, part of that was, part of it, 99% of that was God, and the rest of it was me being selfish about my money. Yeah. But 99% of it was God telling me, that's what happens when you lose control. Mm -hmm. You drink, you lose control. So don't do it. And it was open and shut, over with. Was not going to try that again. The problem with kids today is they can get access to alcohol, and it's cool to get a buzz. Well, it ain't cool. It's stupid. It's wasting. They see, many times they see their dad or their mom sitting around drinking a cold one, and it looks cool. And uh, their mom and dad may be able to control it, but they can't. Um, <clears throat> I talked to a man one time, a young fellow, probably about 25. Talked to him about his soul. And uh, he said, well, I've heard about that. I don't know if I want to do it. 
I said, well, if you know you're going to go to hell if you die tonight, how do you go to sleep? He held up four fingers. I said, what's four fingers? He said, four beers, and I go right to sleep. That's sad commentary. That's a difficult thing to live with. The only way I can sleep is four beers. Why? Because I know my soul's destined to hell. But he don't want to give up his lifestyle. He'd rather have his lifestyle than to have Jesus. Mm. See? And <clears throat> I talked to a guy one time. He said, well, I would trust in your, your Jesus, but what would I do about my friends? I said, you still keep your friends. He said, I won't have to give up my friends. I said, not one friend. Give your heart to Jesus. You don't have to give up any friends. He came to me a couple of weeks later and said, Preacher, you is right. I said, about what? I didn't have to give up my friends. They gave me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but see, <clears throat> it, the, the thing of it is, we live in this society that's so governed by materialism and by socialism and so ruled by godliness, godlessness, I mean, it's what, it's what to say, lack of God in their life. So much of our society has no knowledge of God. You were raised in a religious thing without knowing God. Well, I knew about him. Yeah, but you didn't know him. Mm -hmm. uh, ben was raised in a religious era where he came to know God earlier. Is the thing where my dad came to know Christ as his Savior when he was 29, almost 30. My mom didn't f know Christ until she was 67. My son came to know Christ when he was six. The difference is introduced earlier. Um, the terrible thing, I, I, I see society that in 30 years from the time I started preaching until I had been pastoring um, probably 35 years, I see people go from being raised in church, coming to know the Lord, and all of a sudden finding young men 25 years old. Do you go to church anywhere? No. Tell me, have you ever been to church? I went one time with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. You know. Total abandonment of God. The reason politicians are the way they are is they have abandoned God. There's no fear of God in their life. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. There's no fear of God in their life. There's no knowledge that God requires men to fear him. They don't, they don't want to. They want to be all-powerful. And <clears throat> if you have God control your life, you're not all-powerful. <laughs> so 
our society is caught up in an era, as I see it today, where every man, as in the book says, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. If I can justify it, it's okay. Doesn't matter what it is. Uh, if I can justify importing, uh, smuggling in all this fentanyl, it doesn't matter if it kills people or not, but I'm going to make a million bucks. It's okay. No, it ain't okay. It's sin. And God requires an answer for sin. Now, we know Jesus died for our sin. But the world doesn't know that. The world doesn't want to know that. It's a bigger problem. And we live in this society today where people are so caught up with self and what I want is important and what pleases me is important. I talked to a guy one time. I said, why do you want to marry her? Just stunned him. Well, she pleases me. I said, do you please her? Thought never entered his mind. Mm -hmm. Why? All about himself. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm the one that's important. No. Not if you're going to get married. That person you're going to marry is important. So... When you look, when you look back at your life, what what would you say if you had to sum it up in just a few words? What would you say has been the the key to success for you? Okay, number one, I don't count myself as a success. Uh, to me, a success is people that are really, you know, some preachers are nationwide known and all that kind of stuff, but. For me, it has been let God lead. Uh, I went to Louisiana. God led me to go to Louisiana to start a church. I came, moved back to Texas. God led me to do that. Did I want to do that? Not necessarily. My wife wanted to move back to Texas, and my children didn't particularly care, but I did not want, I started a church in South Louisiana. It grew to be 190 in Sunday school. I didn't particularly want to leave that and go to a church that had 30 in Sunday school. But that's what God wanted. So I did. To allow God to lead my life. I left the racehorse industry. God impressed my life. I'd be stuck in that the rest of my life. It's not what I wanted. And certainly not what God wanted. And I knew it wasn't what God wanted. So I left it. Did I want to leave, live with my mom? Well, not exactly. I knew how my mom felt about me. I knew how my stepdad felt about me. I didn't particularly want to live with him. I moved to live with my dad. I knew... <clears throat> my stepmom definitely didn't want me there, and my dad just tolerated me. But I felt that that's what God wanted me to do. So it sounds like 
your life you you has been one of obedience to God. Trying to be, yes. Trying to be. So why have you been obedient to him? Why have a mm-hmm. peace? <laughs> Just that simple. Have peace with God when I'm obedient. You know, I lay down at night and say, thank you, Lord. This is what you wanted. I've tried to do it. Um, did I have struggles pastoring? Oh, yeah, a lot of struggles. Uh, did I enjoy the struggles? No. I enjoyed the good times. I enjoyed the times when we had a lot of people saved and folks followed the Lord in baptism. Enjoyed that. But when we had financial struggles, that was not appealing to me. <laughs> when my, I, I never made a lot of money. I mean, the most amount of money I made pastoring, about the last four or five years that I pastored, I was probably making a little over 50000 a year. Mm-hmm. And at that time, a lot of pastors were making seventy and seventy-five. Pastoring churches the size that the one, especially the churches. <clears throat> our church was a giving church, and I know some of the people said, "Yeah, but you led us to give." And I said, "Well, okay, that's." But you have to understand, as God laid it on your heart to give, our church was giving church. We were giving uh, hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to missions. And as a church, and so it was a giving church. But I never, never asked for a raise. I never demanded a raise. I felt like God would provide, and He did. And and you said missions. Just for people who aren't familiar with the Christian faith, mission work is an individual or group of individuals will go out into the world. Go out with the intent and purpose and mission of telling people about Christ. Correct. Uh, basically going to other parts of the world. Okay. And sometimes starting churches in regions of America that don't have a church. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, uh, missions was, was a thing of reaching out to the world, getting the gospel out. Uh, I went to Malawi a couple of years ago. The purpose was to train national pastors so they could reach their people better. Uh, Went to Honduras for the same purpose. The truth of the matter is (coughs) the, the object of the church is to reach the world. And if the church doesn't do this, then... The local church dries up. That's just all there is to it. If they don't reach out, they dry up. Mm. That's my observation, my feeling. But, um, yeah, the biggest thing in my life is I tried to follow God's leadership. Did I make some mistakes? Probably Maybe one or two million. <laughs> Is that the conservative or liberal estimate? That's the conservative. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a preacher friend one time told me, he said, 
when I first got into pastoring, he said, I made up my mind. I was never going to apologize, and I was not going to back down. First two years of his ministry, he said, all I did is say, I'm sorry, let me back up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in closing this out, um, this, this is, we're here recording, and then, you know, our hearts, you know, you've heard our heart behind this. This is a Mexican and a redneck in, in a closet slash shed slash, I don't know what this is, office. And we're uh, fathering the world, which, you know, big claim. Um, but, you know, it really, this is more of a documentation of our journey in fatherhood. Yep. Right. Um, one of the neat things about this is that technology has given us the, uh, the opportunity for us to be able to document this and for your words to be recorded. If you have a message or words that you would, you want to say to your great grandkids, your great, great, great grandkids, what, what, what is it that you would like to say? Um, <clears throat> probably something I said to my son many, many years ago. And um, it's a time when my my son rebelled against the Lord. Said, son, I want you right with God. Said, I want you right with God, living or dead. But I want you right with God. Being right with God is the most important aspect of one's life. Everyone is subject to making a mistake. King David of Israel in the Old Testament made a lot of mistakes, but he always repented. He suffered greatly for his mistakes, but he always repented. He got right with God. We can all make mistakes. By the way, we're all subject to making mistakes. Um, even, you know, old guys like me are prone to make mistakes. But I want to be right with God. I desire God to be pleased with me. So I desire, <clears throat> desire my children to be right with God. Desire my grandchildren to be right with God. My great-grandchildren to be right with God. Being right with God is the most important aspect of a man's life, of a woman's life. <clears throat> my wife and I talked a lot in her dying days about heaven and about being right with God. And uh, we discussed the issue of are we right with God? Being right with God is a matter of recognizing my sin and my shortcomings 
asking God to forgive me, give me grace and wisdom to carry on and always do his will. And um, I missed the mark. But I try the next day mm. to be right with God. Always be right with God. You can't be right without God and be crossways with Jesus Christ. <laughs> if you don't accept him as your Savior, you can't be right with God. It has to be a thing where we know Christ is our Savior and we endeavor to do what's right in the sight of God. So my, my thing is be right with God. Mm. Always, always, always. That's my whole goal. And that's my whole purpose. I preached a couple of weeks ago. And the opposite to get people be right with God. By God's grace, I will preach uh, the 2nd of January. And the object will be to get people to be right with God. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yes, Any closing thoughts, Ben? I can't top that. No. Are you kidding me? Got William Shakespeare over here, and you're you're asking Bob the Builder if he's got anything to say. I can't top that. It's amazing. I I I agree. Is that? Yeah. Can I say I agree? Amen. 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 Okay. Uh, I'll say amen. Um, Your grandfather uh, took us to church today, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this time, and I am so grateful that you were willing to be open with us, with me. Um, your story, I, I, I cherish it, and um, one thing in my life that I've realized, God is so faithful to yeah. bring the proper lessons that you need to learn for the experience that you're going through. He hasn't let me down yet. Never. And I don't think he will. No. Um, and he ain't in the failing business. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, and it, it's just, it's, it's awesome to hear your story and just to see how it's not your faith that took you through these moments, but it's the hand of God that carried you through these moments. It's the hand of God and truly. In my instance, it was, this is what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it. And I've had a few people tell me, well, you're so stinking bullheaded, you're going to do it if that's God's will. And I said, well, yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Um, I don't think that I'm hard-headed or bullheaded, little determined. But <laughs> well, <laughs> when you get beat across the head by God, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. learn to listen quick. <laughs> you, learn, you learn to take notice real quick. Yes, sir. Again, how do you argue? It's like, what am I going to say? Yeah. <laughs> it's no. God. I can't argue with God. He's no. God. Well, I, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think about the story of uh, of Exodus and the uh, you know the Egyptians going on uh, going against Moses. They thought they were going against Moses, but they were really going against God. Yeah. And you listen at that story, and it's like you know, 
the Pharaoh was definitely a hard-headed man. Yeah. And it took a couple whippings for him to finally realize, hey, you're not going to win against me. Well, the, the, the truth to that story, as you said, Pharaoh thought himself to be a god. Yeah. And so, who is God that I should worship him? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, he says, I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. You're not self-existent. I am. But Pharaoh didn't realize that until he thought, well, I can follow those bunch of Jews through the Red Sea. It's dry ground. It's dry five miles either way. You know, it took a path ten miles wide for them to go across one day. So I can do that. I'm a God. Mm -hmm. God said, <clears throat> when the wheels begin to fall off the chariots, you ain't nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Heath, I, I thoroughly enjoy this. You can call him Papa. Uh, okay, Papa. Yeah, Papa. We allowed uh, you. Thank you. You, yeah. you have uh, a ab just, abu just, abuela. Abuelito. My abuelito. Yeah. My abuelito Papa. Yeah. yeah, what you said. <laughs> you had one of those. Well, guys, we just want to thank everybody for listening well, to a Mexican Redneck Follow the World. Uh, we uh, hope that you guys enjoy this as much as I have. And uh, we just want to say that we love you and we're proud of you. Unless, do you have any parting word for us? I just enjoyed being here. I'm a Mexican and I'm a Redneck Follow the World.